and welcome to another episode of Stories from Sydney. History of the Harbour City, or did we cut that? <laughs> I thought we cut that long ago, mate. Uh, okay, sorry, go again. <laughs> All right, give me a moment just to compose myself. Hello and welcome to another episode of Stories from Sydney. The podcast where each fortnight one of us tells the other a story tangentially related to Sydney. I'm Alistair. And I'm Jed. And last fortnight, Alistair, it was you telling the story tangentially related to Sydney. Would you care to fill us all in on what you were talking about last fortnight? Indeed it was, yes. Uh, Out of character, moving away from the Sydney stories and into the Jed territory of somewhat related to Sydney stories. I was talking about red cedar, an important commodity in the early part of the colony in the first kind of 100, 150 years of the colony. Yeah, and some of the places around Sydney where it can still be found. Mm, including my shed. Yes, yes, the balusters <laughs> Your stockpile. still need to work yes. on. Yeah, and at the end of that riveting episode about red wood, you gave me a clue about a story far more romantic, exciting, and filled with personal intrigue. Uh, that I believe involved someone riding around carefree on the wrong side of the law, executions at Darlinghurst Jail, and possibly finding true love. Uh, presumably not in that exact order, though. Uh, that's pretty close, and that's, you've done a much better job of uh, prefacing my episode than my clue did, so we'll go with that. But before we begin that thrilling tale, uh, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record our podcast, Uh, This week I'm recording from beautiful sunny Tamworth, which is on Gamilaroi land. And I'm actually isolating in an Airbnb in downtown Auburn, California, uh, until we're allowed to go back to Sydney. This beautiful part of the world is a Maidu country, so I'd like to acknowledge the Maidu people. And also the traditional custodians of the land on which this week's story takes place, uh, which being tangentially related to Sydney is the Maori people, the Kulin Nation, the Wiradjuri people and the Eora. Did you just say the Maori people? I did, yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. Great. <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. So okay. our story is about a man called Andrew George Scott. Uh, I'm assuming you don't have any point of reference for who that is, but as this progresses, you might figure something out. So let me know if anything comes to comes to light for you. Yeah, I've got no idea right now, and I'm... I'm quite sure that I will never never have any idea throughout the episode if it is indeed about bush rangers, which I've decided it is. It might not be. Uh, I probably won't know the story. Yeah, it's a very generic white name and also three first names I've just realized, which is extremely suspicious. <laughs> so Andrew George Scott, our protagonist, he left <laughs> Ireland with his he left Ireland with his upper class and rapidly uh, falling family in 1861 aged 16 on board the Black Eagle, which was a ship bound for Auckland. Okay. His father, Thomas, uh, who was the cause of their need to relocate, he'd lost his job. So he decided to take up 40 acres just north of Auckland. Um, And based on his legal experience in their native island, he was quickly hired as a local magistrate. Right. Nice. Settling in well. Mm -hmm. So the father, Thomas, was extremely popular locally, but there was a depression in the 1860s, apparently, and the widespread cuts to the public service included his role. So he retrained as a reverend, and his son, Andrew, George Scott, he was set out to join the New Zealand gold rush that was underway, but ended up enlisting in the army as an officer in the New Zealand uh, slash Maori wars, which were happening at the time. Uh, Okay. Fascinating. I like this. A bit of New Zealand history coming in. Yeah, I know nothing about New Zealand history. 
Uh, so this was all new to me. I won't, I won't ask too many questions either. we got to get thank back you, to Sydney. Thank you. We do, eventually. So he was shot in the leg during battle. And mm. while he was recovering, someone decided he was taking too long to recover. So he was court-martialed for an offence called malingering. <laughs> Which literally means just taking too long to, suspiciously long to rejoin <laughs> to the war effort. Look, I think we've all known people who malinger a little. <laughs> and I've never known the term for it. No, I, was, I had to look that one up. I was pretty excited about that, actually. So after that episode, he studied as an engineer uh, and then was a, briefly a master at a private school. This is all still in New Zealand. All still in New Zealand. Right. But you'll be pleased to know, Alistair, that in 1868, age 23, Andrew George Scott left New Zealand forevermore. <laughs> Excellent. And, and founded Scott's College in, uh, in the eastern suburbs of Sydney? No. no, he's got one more T than that. Okay. So he moves to a town called Bacchus Marsh. Okay, never heard of it. Bacchus, like the Greek god? Yeah, isn't it a... Gr- I, I should have looked up the history of the pl- place named Bacchus Marsh because it's just an outrageous name for a town, but it's actually somewhere between uh, Melbourne and Ballarat. It sounds like a good time. Yeah, I, I don't think it is, but it certainly does sound like it. <laughs> yeah. So George Scott moves to Bacchus Marsh and he's taken up an appointment with the Church of England there being a lay preacher. Apparently they were short on preachers or pastors or reverends or whatever at the time in Bacchus so Marsh they just, of course they were places yeah, they just hired <laughs> den of iniquity <laughs> so they just hired what they called lay preachers to do the job right Andrew George Scott took to the job in no time at all he was hosting morning teas he founded a young men's association and he was directing local plays and that was the downfall of Bacchus Marsh well he did also love a tipple in local saloons good He's about 23 years old at this point, and as you can see, he's had quite a few jobs already. Yeah. He's obviously a bit of a hustler, and there's evidence from one of the local newspapers in the town that he put an advert in while he was living there that read, Mr. A.G. Scott, licensed government surveyor New Zealand, is about to open an office in Bacchus Marsh where he may be consulted on all works of surveying engineering. Right. Did his previous jobs involve surveying? That. Uh, he studied He studied and worked studied under an engineer for a period. So I'm right. going to say not to any great extent. <laughs> he certainly wasn't a licensed government surveyor of New Zealand. Right. But in 18, the 1860s, it wasn't easy to fact check these There's claims. no way of verifying that, right? Yeah. Or they, well, no so, easy way. <laughs> no easy way. So the reason he did this was because he had this elaborate scheme. He wanted to build a 100-foot-high weir across the Werribee Gorge to build an irrigation system for the district, and he was trying to convince the town into paying him to design and build it. Right, okay, so he had to set up a company first. Exactly. As well as advertising his services, he sent countless letters into local papers, you know, talking up the thing. He put on meet like public town hall meetings to try and convince people of it. He went the whole hog, but unfortunately right. nothing came of that. Okay, so a big, big project, nothing came of it. Mm. While he's there, he develops a lot of local friendships, including one with an 18-year-old man called Julius Brune. And he visits Julius often at his workplace, which is the London Chartered Bank in Mount Egerton, a nearby town. Right. He invites himself to sleep over at the bank, where Julius also lives out the back. Mm. And they're seen taking long walks around the town together, drinking at the pub, and Scott even takes him out uh, shooting, giving him gun lessons at one point. Right. 
So after an intense month of these, all these activities, they suddenly stop seeing each other completely. Okay. I'm, I take it there's a reason you're giving me all these details. I am. Just, I am. I'm gonna let. I'm gonna soak it all up, and the, yeah. The, the surveying's just some background flavor. I will admit. <laughs> Couldn't miss a surveying story. So ignore the surveying part. Focus on this young man and their dalliances. Yes. So three months after his month of dating slash spending a lot of intense time with Julius Brune, Julius Brune is actually held up at gunpoint in the bank. So he lives out the back of the bank. He's coming home at 10 p.m. on a Saturday night, possibly after a few lagers, I would conjecture. I think they would have been ales at that point. Sorry. And he starts unlocking the door to the bank when a masked man slides up behind him on his left side and grabs him on the shoulder. All right. Julius says later on that he told him to be quiet or he would shoot me. At the same time, I heard him cock the pistol. Right. At gunpoint, Julius hands over his gun from the rack, a thousand pounds in cash and one large cake of gold. Nice. Successful robbery so far. Mm-hmm. So far, so good. They head out into the bush where the masked thief ties and gags Brune, and then they go to a quiet schoolhouse where the thief dictates a note for Brune to write. The note reads, I hereby certify that L.W. Brune has done everything in his power to withstand our intrusion and the taking away of the money, which was done with firearms. He then reaches out and signs the note, Captain Moonlight before tying up Brune and leaving with the stash. Ooh, Captain Moonlight. All right. It's a good name. Doesn't ring any bells? I mean, it's probably the name of a famous bushranger, but I don't know anything about bushrangers. <laughs> Evidently. I told you that before we started. <laughs> yeah, but it wouldn't be an episode of Stories from Sydney if I wasn't disappointed about your lack of background knowledge. One of Australia's most famous bushrangers. What? <laughs> A story about Captain Moonlight. <laughs> oh, I've always wanted to know more about him. He's, he's a hero <laughs> of my childhood. <laughs> oh, well, I'll just push on <laughs> just anyway. Just plow on with the story of Captain Moonlight. Look, I like his name. It's fancy. It's got a little bit of a kind of flourish to it. I like it. I can imagine it's also kind spelled, of... I should spell it out at this point. It's spelled M-O-O-N-L-I-T-E. Ooh, bit of an American twist. Yeah, I didn't know they were doing that back then. I thought that was like a, you know, 90s milk McDonald's type thing. <laughs> I thought it was like we've substituted the sugar with some other bizarre derivative of sugar and now, now it's a... Now it's light. Well, he's Captain Moonlight, although it was also occasionally spelled in the more conventional fashion. So shortly after Bruin manages to cut his way out, he rushes to report the robbery. Right. He's certain that he knows who the thief is, recognizing his Irish accent and the injured leg that he drags around from the aforementioned bullet wound. Right. And probably the, the firm grip on the shoulder. <laughs> yeah, they were close friends three months ago, so yeah, I'm not seems... sure the mask would have done all that much it does seem like a strange person to rob if you were yeah we're previously spending quite a lot of time with them yeah so within a few hours the police are knocking at uh, scott's door and he's telling them that he just came on the train from melbourne so he couldn't possibly have been him the very next morning being a sunday scott's delivering his sermon which runs thus oh lord we pray thee in thy great goodness and in accord with thine unerring standard of dealing out even-handed justice to all men, 
so order and direct that the efforts made by the constituted authorities in seeking after the bank robbers may be entirely successful, and that they may be speedily brought to justice, and that the wicked and evil done by these lawless forgetters of thee may result in good thereafter. Excellent. So it can't possibly have been him. No, he's obviously very genuine in his concern. So about a month later, there's a committal hearing where Scott says that he was known in the army in New Zealand as Captain Moonlight, uh, but that it wasn't him because he was at his fiance's house during the robbery. But because of honour, he cannot possibly and will refuse to say who that is. Nice. Exactly as you said before, there was a bit of suspicion surrounding the whole thing that it might have been an inside job. Yeah. Because of that doubt, everyone actually ended up getting let off. Okay. So, perfect. The perfect crime. The perfect crime. So, the next thing Scott does, despite apparently being engaged, is take off to the South Pacific, to Fiji, which in the 1860s was a bit of a um, legal backwater because it didn't have a central government. And as the sort of wild west of the early 19th century in Australia was sort of coming to a close, wasn't wasn't a great place to be a bushranger. Places like Fiji still were because they had no central government and um, there was a lot of other awful things going on. The big big business opportunity in Fiji in the 1860s was cotton. Okay. When I was doing some research about the... Um the swimming stroke, uh, the, Austra- the Australian crawl, as l- learning about the different um, Pacific Islanders used as kind of slave labor around the Pacific. And I think that Fiji might have been a place where there was kind of intensive agriculture with very poorly paid or non-paid labor. Yeah. So a few things going on. One was that there, due to the civil war in America, cotton prices were soaring. Yeah. No central government means no tax. And, yeah, what was described as cheap slave labor because of blackbirding, which was the process where um, men in ships would go to random places in the Pacific and trick people or just straight up kidnap them and take them away to some other place. Fiji was one example, also happened in Queensland, to work as slaves effectively on plantations. Yeah, I do remember that, that the the Civil War in America was kind of uh, spurring this on because there was a demand for cotton yeah. So Scott immediately gets involved in a plan with two men, Hugan and Holsworthy, to set up their own plantation in New Caledonia. Uh-huh. Uh, Scott, living large over there, he agrees to purchase a 225-acre island of his own for £260, and he heads to New Caledonia c- to conduct his business from a hotel. Hugan, one of his business associates, appears to fall in love with Scott, calling him in letters, My Little Heart's Treasure and my joyous, innocent darling. Oh, okay. So this is a recurring theme with Captain Moonlight. Yeah. Scott, he checks out of the hotel and heads back to Sydney to buy more cotton seeds and equipment, leaving his business associates with a 250-franc bill. And after two months of hearing nothing, Hugan uh, sells all of Scott's possessions that he left behind and writes a lengthy uh, note to Scott in desperation. Right. It's a bit of a sad time for Hugan. He lost all his money on the plantation (laughs) scheme. (laughs) He lost his boat, which ran aground shortly after. And uh, as a married man with two kids, who by his own account seemed to be in the process of or intending to commit an infidelity, uh, lost the man he may well have loved. Yeah. 
Oh, his precious little darling abandons him for Sydney, and we're <laughs> yes, and we're now in Sydney. Briefly, we're in at Sydney. Least. Welcome to Sydney in 1870. There's cotton seeds to be bought, or perhaps not. I did wonder whether cotton seeds were things to buy there, but maybe they weren't even. Maybe he was just looking for an excuse to get away. He has. He certainly has absolutely no intention of buying <laughs> cotton seeds. They're never mentioned again. All right. What What is he doing? Well, the first thing that Scott does when he gets to Sydney is to sell a cake of gold for 503 pounds. I wonder where he got that from. Hmm. Uh, with that money, he buys a 270-pound, 53-foot catch named Comet. Very nice. Repairs it and then takes up work ferrying a family of migrants south to Naruma, smuggling goods along the coast of Queensland and living on his boat down at the wharf at Woolloomooloo. Gee, this guy is quite the lovable rogue, isn't he? He is. He even goes on fashionable shopping sprees in Sydney CBD. <laughs> I can see why this episode has been chosen as a, a good topic. <laughs> A flamboyant rogue. <laughs> so uh, by the end of the of the year 1870, Scott will openly admit that the back half of the year is a blur, thanks to his <laughs> drinking spree, and he's got the unpaid hotel bills to prove it. Yeah, well. At one point in Sydney, he apparently falls for an actress and goes along to see one of her shows. Uh, when she's embraced on stage, he fires two shots into the air. <laughs> Oh, this guy's too much. <laughs> which which actually ended up being a great success for the show because ticket sales, you know, were just going out the window after that. He's broken the fourth wall. <laughs> <laughs> On November 30, after cashing countless bad checks and attempting to purchase multiple yachts to escape Sydney, he is arrested in Woolloomooloo. Oh, well, surely that's not the end of his story, though. We've got a lot of minutes to go, so... Okay. We do. So, he's sentenced to 18 months in Maitland Jail, mm-hmm. where he claims that he is being poisoned, goes on a hunger strike, and is transferred to Parramatta Lunatic Asylum, where the doctors suspect he might not actually be insane. Mm-hmm. He attempts to orchestrate an escape there, but is foiled when an inmate outs him, and he's transferred back to Parramatta Jail. Right, so he's quite good at malingering, we already know, right? He seems to be pulling, yeah, his, yeah. pulling his old tricks. Uh, when he gets out in 1872, he writes to his father his intention to sail for New Zealand. He says, quote, This colony is no longer a safe place for me, a man once convicted. The police, who are all professional perjurers, would swear anything against me. Convict blood is in the population. Nothing will efface it. This colony is a fearful place. Okay. Yeah, so that's interesting. I think that part of the history of Australia, the backlash against um, the convict history and it being kind of a point of shame that then is kind of overzealously responded to. So it's then very difficult to get get by if you have any kind of criminal background. Yeah, yeah. And I I mean, I feel like that's still the case. I don't know if that's particular to Australia or amongst Western nations. So good to see a lot's changed in 140 odd years. So Scott is taken back to Victoria, where he's locked in the brand new Ballarat jail. Right. Okay, he's going to a lot of jails. This is all one prison sentence for, for kind of living at large in Woolloomooloo, right? No, he's finished that sentence. Now he's been extradited because he's going to be charged again over the Mount Egerton robbery. Okay. Is this the one from his early days? What? The Julius Braun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one near 
near Bacchus Marsh. Between Bacchus Marsh and Ballarat. Yeah, okay. So he's taken to the brand new Ballarat jail, um, which I presume is a beautiful classic sandstone jail. It certainly was the pride of the town when it was built. Believed to be inescapable. <laughs> Until Captain Moonlight <laughs> yeah. came along. <laughs> Within mere months of being locked up there in June 1872, he plans to execute an escape from the jail. And his reputation precedes him because the Ballarat Courier notes that his escape had the stamp of daring ingenuity ascribed to the notorious Captain Moonlight. It is decidedly to be regretted that his genius did not find a more legitimate channel than it has done. Oh, I like this guy. So once out, his plan with his group of uh, about 10 men, they escaped, I think. His plan was for them to break the telegraph wire and hold up police stations on their way to Geelong where they'd commandeer a boat and sail to Fiji. But unfortunately, the other men maybe weren't so interested in that plan for one reason or another. (laughs) It's quite a specific plan. (laughs) You end up a long way from where you started. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure he'd sold them all on the Fiji pitch. It'll be great, guys. We'll just sit on the beach, coconuts. So they all ended up going their separate ways, and it was 10 days before the last man, which was Scott, was caught and uh, taken back to Ballarat Jail. Okay. So he's tried again for the Mount Egerton robbery, and this time he mounts his own defence. The evidence against him is a bit stronger now. They've had a few years to piece it together. Right, he did sell that gold. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, so one witness says that he saw Scott at a pub in Mount Egerton at 9pm on the night of the robbery, where he went behind the bar to pour a drink himself. So long ago, though, isn't it? Hard to remember if that was the same. Uh, perhaps, yeah. Another witness will say he lent money to Scott, who paid him with bouncing checks until after the robbery, when he repaid him with a <laughs> wad of London chartered banknotes, being the bank that was robbed. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Another witness will say that Scott tried to bribe them. Uh, and to say that he was at their house on the night of the robbery. A publican will say that Scott had no horse until after the robbery when he suddenly owned three horses and a buggy. Very fine horses indeed, I'm sure. (laughs) And a handwriting expert will testify that the signature on the note, the Captain Moonlight signature, is the same writing as the unsent letter to his father. Hmm. That letter came back to bite him, hey? Yeah, as you so wisely pointed out, there's also no denying that Scott sold a big nugget of gold in Sydney um, a couple of years later. So right. he can't and deny that. And that fiancé as well presumably didn't come to anything. He was meant to no, be visiting well, in Melbourne. it's his honour. He can't mention her. Right. It would be against his, her honour or his honour, someone's honour. So <laughs> he can't deny the selling of the gold nugget, right? So what he does instead is employs an elaborate defense where he cross-examines an expert geologist about whether the gold was from Mount Egerton or perhaps from somewhere else, uh-huh. uh, which includes a detailed explanation from Scott about the different characteristics of gold in different parts of the world. And then, and then, and then as Scott uh, was saying afterwards, but, quote, his honor failed to see the relevancy <laughs> of, the que- of the questions. <laughs> Um, It all ends with the geologist admitting that the gold may indeed have come from another gold mine in Victoria, which Scott felt vindicated him. (laughs) I like it. I mean, the man's got some some serious knowledge in interesting areas. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
So the main source of ambiguity in the trial stemmed from the involvement of the victim, Julius Bruin, and also another man, James Simpson, whether multiple mm-hmm. people were involved or his inside job or whatever. But regardless, the jury finds Scott guilty in just three hours and he's sentenced to 10 years hard labor. Okay. So another jail for his collection yeah. will be Pentridge Prison in Melbourne. I'm going to say that he didn't stay there for 10 years. Well, we'll just have to wait and see. So, so he, he, while in Pentridge, Scott makes a name for himself standing up for prisoners' rights. Okay. He writes lots of letters to politicians and newspapers. He constantly demands to speak to prison management. And when um, like prison system inspectors and magistrates come to the prison, he always wants to have a... A meeting with them to talk about the issues. He even takes like specific actions, such as refusing to bathe in water that four other prisoners had already used. Right. Yeah, he seems like a pretty eloquent, persuasive kind of guy. Yeah, yeah, and that's exactly what a reporter who called himself the vagabond and took a job in Pentridge Prison so that he could file an expose on Scott said. He wrote that Scott is dashing, smart rather cunning-looking young man. His education gives him a superiority over the other prisoners who also respect him for his crimes, and he has become a sort of leader amongst them. Nice. An eloquent criminal. (laughs) So while in prison, he builds a strong connection with a younger man called James Nesbitt. Uh, His own prison record, unlike Scott's, is pretty much clean, except for one incident where he took tea to Scott when he wasn't allowed to. Oh, how kind. No, no. And in March 1879, so that's seven years later, Scott is finally released. Okay. So actually, he really did serve most of that sentence. He did the crime and he served the time. But now he's free to gallivant around. Well, yes, he's he's a sort of free. Uh, the conversation we had about what happens to people once they get out of prison will become relevant. Right. Once on the outside, Scott organises a public speaking tour across Victoria to speak on prison reform okay. with Nesbitt, the guy who brought him tea, and another man, Williams, at his side. He then has a publicist called Thatcher, and Thatcher is troubled but also intrigued by Scott. He describes him as, quote, a vain, pretentious man with a false highfalutin notion of honour and a hatred of constituted authority, strong homicidal impulses. Whenever he lectured, he invariably carried firearms and was fond of levelling them at imaginary objects. He is a madman, so far as all those who think deeply on one subject are. <laughs> so it's funny because I was just before you, you just added that last detail up quite amazing quote i was gonna say he's not really a, your standard image of a of a bush ranger or at least the one that i feel like i was brought up with well i mean firstly he seems quite upper crust he's very eloquent and flamboyant and he just yeah doesn't fit the mold but then actually that i, I wonder whether that quote is putting him in a different mold than he belongs in or whether he actually uh, also was was your classic bush ranger so i i haven't done a huge amount of research beyond the moonlight story for this a lot of other things came up and one of them is exactly that it's like why does the bush ranger folklore that we understand exist in the way it does and why doesn't it feel like moonlight is a good fit for that yeah and i'm not going to pretend to be well informed on this topic but i think that comes about because of ned kelly who's undoubtedly the most famous bush ranger yeah and was like yeah. a blokey lower class 
not educated. Yeah. You know, what you might consider to be like a common criminal, a 19th century version of a guy who holds up servos. Well, yeah, because there's a yeah, strong class element to it because he was a impoverished Irish rural worker to begin with who had fairly legitimate grievances with the landholders around him and then kind of it builds from there, you know? Mm. But this is a very different story. Yeah, yeah, but they're both Irish. Yeah, true, yeah, but from very different ends of the social spectrum. The other thing I find interesting about that quote from Thatcher is that, is that he talks about him, like, leveling gun at, ima- at imaginary objects and says he's a madman, yeah. but then just goes, well, as much as anyone who's interested in any yeah. one thing is. <laughs> really? Because I have a friend who really likes <laughs> mushrooms and he doesn't go around, like, leveling his gun. <laughs> so now he's traveling around Victoria doing his public speaking events. They're not going super well. People are losing interest in his you know, one note prison reform agenda. Mm-hmm. And he's got this sort of posse of four young men uh, slash boys. They're sort of aged, I think, like 15 to early 20s with him. And they're constantly being harangued by police. Mm-hmm. So they sneak out of Melbourne and decide to head back to New South Wales. There's a depression going on, I believe, or things are just generally awful because they can't find work anywhere. They're getting harassed by police. You know, it's a hard time. Yeah. They cross into New South Wales and on the road, they meet a man called Bennett and Scott asks him what he thinks of Captain Moonlight. Yeah. To which Bennett replies that he knows little of him, but enough to know that he's a villain. Uh-huh. So he joins their band, unaware that Scott is Moonlight. Yeah. And they arrive starving and cold at a cattle station called Wantabadgery, which is near Gundagai in southern New South Wales. Uh-huh. And they've heard that this place is famed for its hospitality to poor itinerant workers and travellers. So they go up and knock on the door and find out that it unfortunately has recently changed owners. Mm, not and so the new friendly. ones don't feel that way. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so they're turned out and they go and camp the night on a nearby hill in driving rain with uh, not much to eat and no prospects. And it's at that moment that they hatch a plan. Yeah, basically. So Scott will say that they, quote, had no intention of becoming bushrangers. Misery and hunger produced despair. And in one wild hour, we proved how much the wretched dared. So they head to the farm and they kidnap the farm manager, his wife and a stable groom. They take him hostage at gunpoint. And it doesn't seem like they have a huge plan here because... They keep them hostage there for quite some time. I think it's a doubt a day. Right. And while that's going on, new people keep arriving at the farm. So um, delivery people arrive and the owners of the farm arrive and everyone's arriving and they just keep getting thrown inside with the, you know, general (laughs) collection of hostages. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Mostly it's going well. Scott's, you know, very proper. He kills two turkeys um, and has them cooked and served to the gang. And then he hands over a shilling and ninepence for the meal. Oh, yeah. He threatens to kill the farm manager after he calls him a puff, which was slang for a homosexual at the time. Right, okay. Um, which enrages Scott, but others, someone, they talked him down from killing him or doing anything particularly violent. Later on, a farm worker arrives on horseback and Scott engages in some bravado about his skill with horses and then the horse rears up, so he sh- kills the horse, shoots it in the head. Okay, but so far he's killed a horse, but he's he's not he's not exactly engaging in mass bloodshed. No, he paid for his supper. 
<laughs> I don't see what the problem is. <laughs> so the next afternoon, Scott heads a mile down the road to the nearest pub, the Australian Arms, and he takes the family and other drinkers there hostage. Uh, but the husband isn't home. Gee. So they take those people back to the station <laughs> where the second night falls. They have 40 now. <laughs> what is he going to do with them all? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's really unclear. So in the early hours of the second night, the next morning, uh, a dog barks and Scott realises that they're surrounded. Turned out that that a visitor to the pub had gone and let the husband know who, and he had called the police in Wagga. I was going to say, surely someone was missing one of these 40 <laughs> yeah, people. Yeah. <laughs> he went over there yeah. and never came back. <laughs> so the police from Wagga arrive and they surround the house. Scott and Nesbitt run outside and start firing at them. There's only four police because they didn't really believe that this was going on uh, to this extent. So the police back off towards a swamp and in four minutes, they run off the property, but they left their horses, which Scott and Nesbitt take back to the house. Okay, so the police, uh, sorry, the police are run off the property, and yeah. now they've just got a couple of horses. The, the bush rangers have, have gained two, a couple of horses. Yep, yep. So after breakfast, Scott makes a speech informing all the hostages that he is Captain Moonlight, and he will show no mercy to the police or anyone assisting them. Okay. Then the gang jump on the horses that they've got because they've got the two from the police plus extras and they ride off except uh they don't ride very well because apart from scott they're mostly city kids who haven't ridden horses before so everyone's right. laughing as they struggle to ride <laughs> off into the into the day into the sunset yeah it's it's morning unfortunately oh right okay anyhow they stumble off into the morning Yep, yep. So they head back to the Australia Arms uh, for some reason, and they on the way they run into some passing men on the road who had been assisting the police, were known to have been assisting the police. So Scott takes them hostage and holds a makeshift trial there on the road, appointing some of the men to be a jury for the rest of the men. Mm. And then they have like a little makeshift trial and Scott argues that the men had come out intending to shoot him, so he is entitled to shoot them. But one of the men figures out that the best solution here is to play to Scott's vanity, so they all kneel before him and plead for their lives, and he ends up agreeing not to kill the men, but insists on the blood of one of their favourite horses, which he executes. Oh my gosh, he seems into killing horses, this guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess at least he's not killing people. I thought this was going to go in a very dark direction when he was making them engage in their own trial. Yes. <laughs> no, just another sort of fairly strange and uncoordinated turn of events. Right. I take it this story is not going to be about Sydney at all at this point, right? <laughs> <laughs> Apart from that he ends up at Darlinghurst Jail. He. What about that bit in Woolloomooloo? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No good point. What about when he sold that gold nugget? Yeah, no, actually, yeah, he was like he was one of the first dandies in the cross in a way. Thank you. Yeah, good point. Sorry, Jed. This is a very strictly Sydney-based story. Yeah, that's a forgotten part of Sydney's history. That yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So the gang uh, have no option but to head to a nearby house. They're starting to feel a bit uh, like things aren't going too well for them. Uh, of one of the men they've kidnapped, McGleed. So they head to this house, 
but by mid-afternoon, it's surrounded by a mix of the four shamed Wagga Wagga police, more police from Gundagai, and a couple of armed and presumably angry local farmers. So the bush rangers are quickly outgunned and they retreat to the sort of rear of the house where the kitchen is. It's like an outhouse, I suppose. And this is all being watched by hundreds of spectators. The police orchestrate a pincer manoeuvre. So they're coming from both sides and bullets are flying thick and fast in every direction. Scott is positively frothing with vigour. And the woman of the house, Hannah McGleed, is being, has been trapped in the kitchen and she's been huddled with James Nesbitt, who's looking after her, I suppose, in a way. He's insisted to her that it's not safe to rush outside. But meanwhile, bullets are punching through the walls of the slab hut. Right. So Nesbitt tried unsuccessfully to talk Scott down. Eventually, he told him, George, for my sake, shed no more blood. Promise not to. At which point, Scott stared back at him and then nodded. Oh. One of the gang, Tom Williams, is standing nearby holding a rifle that he is yet to fire because he isn't sure how to load it. <laughs> I like this motley crew. <laughs> one guy who's really into it and the rest of them are kind of don't know what they're doing or are like actively advising him to stop. And there's a boy, Gus Winicki, who was, I think, about 16, and he's outside fire, engaged in firing with the police as well. He's probably the only other one that's doing much firing apart from Scott. And um, in that in that maelstrom, a cop or a trap, as they were known at the time, apparently, mm-hmm. police officer, if you will, mm-hmm. called Edward Webb Bowen. He's shot in the neck, um, and in days to come, he will eventually die. Mm-hmm. Now another trooper rushes forward to the kitchen window and fires through, and it's a perfect shot on James Nesbitt's temple. Oh, okay, but he was the one protecting the woman and trying to convince his mate to give it up. Yeah, yeah, which he did convince Scott to do, sort of, apparently. Right. So Scott rushes outside, but the gang is done. Well, Nicky's been shot, and um, there's nothing left to do but surrender. So he's handcuffed, and then Nesbitt is still breathing inside, and Scott rushes back to him, falls to the ground, cradling Nesbitt's head in his cuffed hands, while Nesbitt breathes his last breath as Scott cries out, desperately kissing his face yeah that's a tragic story because they've been together for a long time now right were they well they met in prison prison. and then they went on the lecture tours together and then they went on this hopeless expedition to new south wales and I, i assume then that the the um the assumption is that they had a some sort of romantic relationship as well to some extent yeah yeah and we'll come to that more later on right i guess the way stories like this are always told is trying to piece together the different types of evidence you've got and thankfully right. um scott was a very enthusiastic writer yeah so we actually have a lot of words straight out of his mouth which i guess compared to a lot of historical figures make his story a bit more interesting to hear because it's i mean obviously a lot of it's created by him but he seems like someone that went to a lot of effort to create a character for himself anyway and seem to present himself as that character so we get to read that character in a way that was probably similar to how he seemed at the time yeah yeah and there's so many different newspaper articles about him like he was obviously a big enough figure that an investigative journalist in melbourne made up a story to get into the prison took a job in the prison just to write a story about him right like that's a big deal yeah, 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 exactly. Investigative journalists probably aren't that keen on taking up jobs in 
prisons. For the scoop of the year. Um, so the gang are first tried in Gundagai and then they're sent to Sydney to face a jury. So I've combined them into one trial because it's easier. Uh, some of this stuff mm. was said in one or some was said in the other. They do go to Sydney to face trial at Central Criminal Court. Okay. Yeah, if I've learned one thing from podcasting, it's not to try to explain trials. Go- okay. Well, yeah. I'm about to. That's all right. <laughs> I'm not. No, but I'm, I'm really going to just focus on the, the good bits, the juice. Play fast and loose with the details, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Scott's defending himself again, since he reckons he did a bang-up job last time, and he's defending his friends as well. Uh-huh. Oh, so he just does his all of his own representation in court? Yes. Nice. Yes. He, his very first trial, he didn't, and then he dismissed the lawyer <laughs> halfway through and took over, and after that, he never looked back. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> so he's doing sixteen up to 16-hour days in court, and then he's having to prepare his case at night in his prison cell where he doesn't have access to outside help and he's on rations. So it's very taxing on him. Um, yeah. The other thing that's going on in Sydney at the same time is the Sydney International Exhibition. Ah, yes, with the Garden Palace in the Botanical Gardens. Yeah, which, as we discussed in the Maclay episode, burnt down, destroying much antiquity that was in Sydney at the time, but not the Maclay collection because they hadn't given it to the exhibition. Yes. So there's sort of like a culture war going on at the time between the Sydney establishment who were trying to make Sydney look like a, you know, cosmopolitan international city. Look, we've got this exhibition and... The, the 19th century version of the Daily Telegraph type crowd, which are pushing like this whole glamorous bush ranger angle. Okay. And so there's a real tension about the way the media is portraying him as a potentially likable figure. And the establishment just want to get this trial done and get it out of the spotlight as quickly as possible. Right. Okay. Because the kind of like uh, lovable larrikin isn't part of the vibe they're going for with their cosmopolitan flourishing uh, international city. So another journalist sneaks in to get an interview with him. And this evening news article will write, quote, that their appearance is anything but ferocious. They have the appearance of well-bred boys belonging to good families. And so whether that's true or not, it's buys, it plays into the whole idea that they're trying to sell the public that these people are likable, basically. Yeah, <laughs> which nothing like well-bred nice boys will do, you know. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. So the journalist who wrote that article even gives Scott the last word uh, in the piece where Scott says, I have not even received the depositions. Undue haste is being shown in my case, and if they hang me now, it will be judicial murder. Mm, nice. Yeah, interesting. It's interesting how how much I think it is a part of Australian cultural history that that often these kind of figures uh, get general public support or at least sympathy. Mm. Yeah. The amount of interest around this case is enormous. The court issues 1,300 passes for people to watch the trial and everyone else just has to mill around outside the courthouse. Yeah. I also, I really appreciate you bringing up the kind of contrast with the international exposition. It's kind of interesting to think of both things happening at the same time in Sydney. Yeah. So the key point of the trial is that the policeman who was shot has now died. Right. But no one's sure who killed him. Right. 
Unfortunately for the lads, the law states, quote, where several persons are together for the purpose of committing a breach of the peace, assaulting persons who pass, and while acting together in that common object, a fatal blow is given, it is immaterial which struck the blow. For the blow given under such circumstances is in point of law the blow of all, and it is unnecessary to prove which struck the blow. Right. Okay, so actually they can all be convicted of a single murder. Yeah, as long as the Crown can prove that it wasn't police crossfire. Okay. At the trial, Scott waxes lyrical about some of his favourite topics, mainly prison reform. He badmouths the police on the stand, and he defends his own honour and that of his mates. He says, I was not so important as my friends are, one as good as a friend as ever lived, with a soft heart and as kind. He prevented bloodshed by taking that gun from me when I could have fired from it. If a victim has to suffer, I should like to do so and hold these lads innocent. I alone commanded and these boys did as I bid them. But though not guilty of the blood of anybody, I am ready to suffer for their sake and answer for breaking the laws of this country. I wish the country to know this, and when I fill a dishonoured grave with my friends who sleep in your cemetery, I wish that their names shall not be handed down with ignominy. To fate shall draw a tear from my eye, for I fear no fate. I had kind friends, and they are gone, and I wish to follow them. But before I go, let those who stand beside me go free. There you go, a stirring, gallant speech. You can see why he was uh, so notorious and well-loved. Yeah, he's a great speaker. Anything he spoke on, you can find wonderful paragraphs about it. But I've tried to stick to ones that are uh, relevant to the story at hand, with possibly varying degrees of success. (laughs) Right, so how did this go, this appeal to kind of take him as the ringleader and allow some degree of... Um, forgiveness to to his accomplices. So Nesbitt and Winnicki are both dead. They died at the shootout. Yeah. Uh, leaving Scott, Rogan, Bennett, and Williams. Reminding you that Bennett's the man who uh, was just travelling along and apparently didn't know that Scott <laughs> was Moonlight. That, yeah, <laughs> yeah, said that Moonlight was a roguish guy and he didn't want anything yeah. to do with it. So after a rushed trial, so it was only a few days, the jury took just two hours to reach a verdict and they found all four men guilty, but they recommended mercy for Rogan, Bennett and William. Okay. So it sounds like uh, the Moonlight's plea actually was, was heard. Yeah, he seems to get pretty good responses from people. Like he's obviously very convincing to a lot of different kinds of people. Yeah. And he's the first up after the verdict to give his speech And he thanks the jury for asking for mercy. And he pleads to the judge, do not let them remain so long in jail in a living tomb that when they come out, they have no hope for the future. Mm -hmm. His speech doesn't stop there. He continues to advocate for laws banning the media from um, broadcasting criminal findings and giving away public tickets to trials as if it was a show. He recites a poem. And then his closing remark is a request to the judge that he be allowed to be buried in Gundagai, wearing Nesbitt's clothes and in the same grave as Nesbitt. Okay. So after that, the judge gives a speech rebuffing Scott and sentences all four men to hang. Oh, mate. (laughs) 
I don't know. I don't know anything about how the legal system works, but if the oh, because the jury all found them guilty, right? But then yeah, it was only a recommendation, right? Yeah, okay. exactly. So the sentencing is up to the judge. Apparently, well, uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm no legal expert. Uh, I think that's how it works. <laughs> Look, it's not a law podcast. Exactly right. So after the sentence, Scott's back to his cell and he spends the intervening time between his hanging date furiously writing letters to his friends on the outside. So on his own 35th birthday, he writes to a man named Claude, who he held hostage at Wantabadgery Station, but they actually built a close friendship to each other and who looked after Nesbitt's burial for him. Mm. So he writes a long rambling message to Claude about the importance of friendship Um, about his feelings as he nears his death. And he finishes by saying that, quote, the only thing I long for is the certainty that I may share his grave. I want a rough, unhewn rock saying, this stone covers the remains of two friends separated by death on the 17th of November, 1879 and united by death on the 20th of January, 1880. Yeah, he has a way with words, doesn't he? Mm. And and grand gestures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, quite very touching, though. Yeah. Scott finds out that the penal authorities aren't sending any of his letters, which is sad for him, but wonderful for us because they all ended up in the state archives. Okay. So all those letters he wrote after he was supposed to be hung are publicly available, and that's why part of the reason why there's such a rich story about him now. Yeah, it sounds like there's a huge amount of material about Moonlight. Mm. So on the day that Scott and Rogan are executed, the other two, Williams and Bennett, have their sentences commuted to life sentences. And Scott and Rogan are buried at Haslam's Creek Cemetery, which will become Rookwood. Uh-huh. Thomas Williams, who was had his sentence commuted, he was hanged five years later in 1885 for an attempted murder while serving time in Parramatta Jail. And Graham Bennett, the man they'd picked up on the road, was let out four months after William was hanged. Okay, so he did... It was an unfortunate kind of run-in with Moonlight for him, but at the end of the day, he managed to move on in life. Yeah, he got clear within a decade as well, so, you know. <laughs> could be worse. Look, Everyone else is dead. Things happen when you're on the road in rural <laughs> yeah. New South Wales. You never know what'll happen. But, and I think I just missed that part, but you were saying that Scott Moonlight ended up getting buried at what's now Rookwood Cemetery. He was, his wish to be buried with Nesbitt down in uh, Gundagai didn't, didn't happen. Yeah, yep, exactly. That was disregarded. So the executioner, uh, Robert Rice Howard, would hang Louisa Collins two years later. Yeah, so we've already had a story about that. I think he's got an interesting story behind him as well. He was like a taxi driver who lost his nose and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Tell that story. I wanted to include more about him, but wasn't viable. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then Ned Kelly, who we mentioned, Australia's last bushranger, was hanged in Melbourne 10 months later after Scott. And that was the end of the bushranging era. Well, that was that was wonderful. I didn't know anything, as you know, as as you were disappointed to find out. I knew nothing about <laughs> Captain Moonlight. Uh, I love that you've managed to bring it around to actually be a story of a kind of Woolloomooloo man about town, frequenter a of the theatres, flamboyant homosexual bushranger, yeah, <laughs> who um, then ends up coming full circle back in Sydney for the trial of the century. Not what the uh, establishment's trying to put on show here with their their big exposition going on. It's um yeah, it's a great story. Yeah, and he's 
like he's such an interesting character because it's it's all amped up to eleven. Like he's got these yeah. really, you know, what we can reflect on as as contemporary, you know, morally minded people as like really good things, and then there's stuff that's like totally unforgivable in a way as well. Yeah, yeah. Combined in one man, so he was a fun figure to read about. But the story's not not quite over, Alistair. For 115 years later, the remains of Scott were exhumed on the petitioning of two women from Gundagai, Christine Ferguson and Samantha Azimus, so that they could fulfill Scott's dying request. And so on the 13th of January 1995, a group of locals dressed in period costume led a funeral procession for Scott with his remains and taking them from the town's old jail to the North Gundagai Cemetery where he was laying into a new grave with the stone as requested. Oh, yeah. The rough, unhewn stone with his epitaph that he chose written on it, um, marking his grave. But unfortunately, Nesbitt's burial place in that cemetery is unknown. So Right, okay. But they're a lot closer than they were. Yeah, that's a nice touch. And, yeah, obviously this is a, a significant figure that, that lots of people still know and care and read and talk about so that events like this are still happening in the 1990s well so what happened was that in the early 90s all those letters became known to exist in the state archive. oh okay okay and what one of the earliest historians that investigated scott and the question of his sexuality in particular was gary wotherspoon whose book gay sydney was what i what informed uh, my I was thinking that might have been a, yeah a bit of a connection here yeah so in 92, he wrote an article exploring the question of Scott and Nesbitt's relationship. And he basically concluded that even though we lack the terminology um, and understanding to assess 19th century friendships, yeah. the information we do have strongly suggests that the relationship between them was almost certainly sexual. Not, not that we right. can ever know definitively, but it doesn't kind of, to his mind, fall in the same category as other 19th century male friendships that are sort of, you know, a fairly common trope. Right, right, in a a kind of different category. Mm. Yeah, um, that's very interesting. So uh, is this a... Is Captain Moonlight a figure that kind of has captured the imagination of of gay Sydney? And is it kind of something that you'll see at different, like, drag shows and stuff? You'll have a Captain Moonlight on the stage? I've never heard anyone mention anything about him. And I don't know why I chose this story, <laughs> but I will say that he is not a well-known figure in okay. gay Sydney. But I think I think he's most well-known amongst bushranger aficionados. Right. And the two women that actually petitioned the state government to get him exhumed were not anything to do with queer history. Right. They were just locals, and he's a like important local, local legend. Figure. Yeah. 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 I think bushrangers often are, right? The different uh, kind of rural towns uh, will have the, the local bushranger who is significant in that area and there'll be little oh, yeah. museums and statues and, yeah. Much more than any anyone else. Like, you know, just driving around regional New South Wales, like Captain Thunderbolt up in Urala, like there's roads named after him, there's a statue. Yeah. Yagawra out west of Orange is like, it's all about Ben Hall and this robbery he did there. Like, it's very much about bushrangers, which is so strange in a way. Yeah, but it is a matter. I mean, it's a, it's the folklore of Australia in a way. Mm. 
Yeah, actually, I, w I wanted to ask. I think that there's probably nothing, uh, but is there any strange traces of uh, Captain Moonlight in Woolloomooloo or anything like that that you found out about? No, nothing. Just all the letters that are at the State Archive in Kingswood. Right. And then I guess the only the locations attached to him would be the the court, the the Central Criminal Court. I think you said, and then yeah, Darlinghurst, Darlinghurst Jail. There's a Jail. spot where you can, if you can get access to the. I don't know if it's part of the art school or how accessible it is to the public, but there is a spot in there where he was hanged. You know, the hanging spot right. in the jail. Yeah. Um. Probably the same for Louisa Collins. Um, obviously, the places, Wanda Badgery Station near Gundagai, Gundagai Cemetery, yeah. Ballarat and Pentridge prisons. Um, Mount Egerton is sort of like a, I, I think it's kind of like a hill end of Victoria, like a bit of a old gold mining town that's sort of half still like that. Right. Could be wrong. Um, but yeah, so, so the source I used for this story, to the exclusion of anything else really, was a book called Moonlight by Gary Linnell. Okay. He's actually the author of Buckley's Chance, which is yeah. the story of William Buckley. I remember you telling me about that book. Yeah, you wanted me to do a story from Sydney about it, but I refused because it has actually nothing to do with Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this one, I feel like you got enough Sydney in there to, to make it a Sydney story. Thank you, yeah. So the book, the style of both books, Buckley's Chance and um, Moonlight, is their their history their you know it's all sourced history but he does away with any of that direct sourcing he says that he despises footnotes oh, wow. and so the whole thing reads like a novel and obviously stuff like conversation that occur you know there's some sort of conjecture around i guess right. like filling in of people's thoughts and stuff like that um so it's a narrative style which i do find can grate a little bit especially when you're trying to read it to write podcast episode um and you have to reef through all this narrative but um also everything i needed to know was in there so that was wonderful yeah it sounds like it would have academic historians gnashing their teeth does he have like a, a presumably a bibliography at the end or something about where he got his yeah sourcing? yeah right. yeah he does and uh yeah it, it says in the acknowledgements that he spoke to gary weatherspoon extensively about it so i was like okay right. hopefully it's all true then <laughs> <laughs> i guess we'll find out if it's not yeah look people can tell us about all the details that are wrong yeah look there's always a place for for narrative histories as well that yeah different ways of presenting things to to get people interested and make the story a bit more uh accessible and there's there's so much more to it i just had to pick the bits that gave the most context to his life and told the story of who he was um, without getting bogged down, hopefully, in too much specific detail. But it does mean that a few bits, especially the trial, is probably not as true to life as it could otherwise be. Yeah, no, yeah. and you had to include that part about the surveying weir. That was very significant. I was I was took to the thing with a hatchet, and that was 100 words that definitely couldn't come out. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't be left out. Well, thank you so much, Jed. That was, that was a great story. I... Didn't consider myself a person who was into bushranger history, but I really thoroughly enjoyed that. I'll have to think of Captain Moonlight next time I'm in the Woolloomooloo area. Hmm. Well, I'm glad you liked it. I knew you would because it's a, a wishy-washy personal interest tale. But <laughs> yeah, look, I'll I'm... be back with uh, the solid facts of building history in no time. <laughs> Great. Looking forward to it. And on the note of looking forward, uh, do you have a clue for me for next Fortnite story? 
I certainly do have a clue ready for you, Jed. Uh, in a fortnight's time, I will be talking about my political story from this season. Mm, and political. We, indeed. We will be looking at another trial that captured the imagination of Sydney and indeed Australia, but this time about a couple of decades, 30, 40 years after uh, the trial that you were talking about this week. Mm -hmm. um, in this case, all certainly was not quiet on the home front. In fact, things were really going up in flames. Ooh, a cryptic clue. <laughs> yes, indeed. You've been inspired. <laughs> I don't know whether you know about this, you might. I don't think I do, but I'm definitely getting some World War One vibes thanks to your fairly non-cryptic clue about timing. You put it 30 to 40 years after Moonlight's trial, which puts us bang in the teens. And all quiet on the home front feels like a reference to the Western Front, but in Australia. So something going on during the war at home. What was the other thing? Up in flames. Did someone blow something up? A terrorist act in Australia. Any of that landing? Well, look, Jed, you've got, you seem to have <laughs> got a lot of ideas there. We'll have to um, wait until Fortnite's time to really dive into what was going on in Sydney during the war. And uh, yeah, hopefully learn a couple of fun tidbits on the side about uh, famous lollies, actually. Mm, I feel like I might get red for not knowing about what this is. Oh, no, I don't think but, so. Um, I'd never heard of it. Oh, good. Good. Your extensive high school study of modern history always intimidates me. No. Being an ancient man myself. <laughs> no, don't worry about that. Yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Me too, man. Sounds good. And thanks for tuning in, everyone for my episode this week. I hope you enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun to write, if somewhat laborious, but uh, we won't hold that against Moonlight. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please share it with your friends and family. Feel free to write us and let us know that you loved it. Uh, you can also give us a five-star rating on the platform where you listen to your podcasts. And uh, if you're not already following our social media platforms, we're on Instagram and Facebook, and we've decided to make the Facebook page slightly more useful lately so if you do listen to our podcast through your browser on our website storiesfromsydney.podbean.com we will now be posting links to the source material for each episode on that page and you can also read about the source material on facebook so if you want to know more please head to one of those two places i'll see you next time for my story from sydney